Hi, and welcome to the Slip Flops Podcast. I'm Angelique Gay, a mom and a writer who recently went through a major life transition. Each week, I invite other creatives and change makers on to talk about their own transitions, a time in their life when they felt completely untethered and lost, which, as it turns out, is completely normal and can even be life-affirming. Ever since I read Jamie Brenner's debut novel, Wedding Sisters, I've been hooked. I read her books the second they come out, and I've read every single one. Her characters are written with such emotional realism that they feel like someone you know personally, and the settings are always so dreamy that it feels like taking a vacation with a close friend. If you are looking for your next escape, look no further than one of Jamie Brenner's books. absolutely thrilled to introduce you to Jamie Brenner. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, I'm excited to talk to you. I am so honored and excited to talk to you. This is, this is insane. (laughs) (laughs) I've read all your books, or at least I thought I had, and then I realized there's one I haven't read yet, which I think is called Gin Lovers. Oh, that's sort of an anomaly because it was originally published as a serial. An episode was released for um, like digital book reading every week for six weeks. And then they just kind of bound it up into a book. So that wasn't really originally intended okay. to be a novel. So I don't <laughs> think it counts. So I think you can officially say you read them all. Okay, good. So yes, yeah, so there I am reading last June, Blush. And... I think literally somewhere on around page 79, you use the word transition, as in the patriarch of the family is going through a transition. And my podcast is about transitions. And at that moment, I said, I have to invite her. Wow. But, you know, cut to real life and saying that'll never happen. And then on a whim, I wrote to you and yeah. said yes. So I just think it's so kind of you because, you know, you write these incredible female characters who are like our mentors. And so I see you being that way. So it's very on brand and I'm grateful. (laughs) I'm really inspired by it. Thank you. Well, transitions are tough and I feel like they're a part of life we're not completely prepared for in most situations. So it's a worthy subject for discourse. Absolutely. And it's the stuff of great drama, right? Is the discomfort of being a metamorphosis and all of your characters always, you know, they're these amazing strong women who are independent, financially independent, and then all of a sudden they go off course. And then they find their way with the help of other women, which I, is just such an empowering subject matter. And I think it's why I'm so drawn to your books and so many women are. So let's start with blush. Sure. Um, you have a theme. It's kind of a symbolic women taking down the patriarchy. That's how I saw it. With <laughs> kind of the three women banding together to change the patriarch's mind. So Did you do that on purpose? Was it maybe a social commentary on past presidents? Or was it, did it just happen that way? Blush, you know, in many ways, it was a book I always wanted to write. And it's very much a response to the climate I grew up in, in the 70s and 80s. And I didn't get the message that I could go out and do it, you know, have a career and this, I was basically told, be polite, be pretty, get married, like, that's your job, that's your role. 
that's what I was hearing from like the people in real life. And then I discovered these books by Jackie Collins and Judith Kranz and Shirley Conran. And the women in those books certainly were not waiting around to get married or for anyone to give them permission to do anything. And they kind of blew my mind and I devoured them. The characters in those books, and by extension, the authors of those books, had a bigger impact on me than my real-life friends or parents or teachers. In fact, when I told my fourth-grade teacher I want to be a writer, she looked at me and she said, well, maybe you can be a teacher. And being a teacher is a great profession, but that wasn't what I said. And even then, I knew if I had been a boy telling her my aspirations, her response would have been different. So blush had been brewing for a long time. And I'd also, you know, it's like my fifth or sixth book. Every summer I publish a novel and I go around to bookstores and book clubs talking about the book I've just written. But deep down, I really had this desire all along to talk about the books I'd read. And so blush was the chance for me to do both. I love that. How did you meet your deadline during the pandemic? Oh, well, fortunately, Blush was really close to finished when everything started shutting down. In fact, I was living in New York City and my I worked in this, you know, workspace, this like female workspace, and it closed. And I was like, oh, how am I going to finish this book over the next few weeks? Because I really thought like it would be a few weeks and then things would be back. So I went to my hometown just for some space to finish writing. And of course, nothing return to normal. Like that was just a new normal, but I didn't know it at the time. So I really only needed to write like the last chapter or two before things went completely haywire. And how did you keep writing? Because now you have a new book coming out and then you're working on another one. So how do you write during these times? I have to say there, I think is a fantasy for some writers. And I know I had this fantasy like, oh, if Everything would just shut down and all I had to do was write. It would be so much easier. (laughs) And then I got my wish and it was actually so much harder. And I learned that it's really the rhythm of life that lets me feed off of things and write and gives me time constraints and that makes me productive. And when all of that was gone... I struggled. And another thing that was taken away, you know, research is a big part of every book, not library research, but talking to people and going to places and seeing the world I want to write about myself. And that was taken away from me during the pandemic. But fortunately, my next book, which is called Guilt, is set in the jewelry world. And there are some really fabulous nonfiction books that kind of let me get away with not traveling during that time. So it worked out fine. But the writing process itself, I have to say, it was tough doing it in this sort of bubble that we were all in. But you're pulling it off. (laughs) I mean, I had to, you know, it's like, I think we all have had to adjust our work lives to this new rhythm. And from, you know, I think for writers, it's no different. I didn't have like the book had to get written I couldn't say I'm not showing up for work this year. Like I just had to do it. And luckily writing is something you can do on your own, but I'm looking forward to getting back to, you know, normal life and writing amidst the interruptions that I used to complain about. That's so interesting. So let's go back to your childhood. Tell us about where you're from and describe your childhood and the setting. 
So I grew up in mainline Philadelphia. That in itself is very much a bubble. Like I grew up in the 70s and 80s, but it might as well have been the 50s. No one really told me to work hard or like aspire to anything. You know, my parents never talked to me about going to college. Even when I was in school, which they don't have today, you know, I remember taking sewing classes and cooking classes. And I remember in high school wanting to be the editor of the newspaper and not really being taken seriously, like that job went to a a boy. So it took me a long time to figure out that the world I grew up in wasn't necessarily the world at large, and it wasn't the world I had to inhabit forever. And so it was a learning curve. And sometimes I think girls have it easier today because they see like so many more examples of people doing things and the internet connects everyone. Then there's the whole double-edged sword of that. So, but it was definitely a very distinct time that didn't necessarily set me up for success, but in a way it made me think about the world in a way that's perfect fodder for fiction. Tell me about Saturdays with your dad where he would buy you a new book. (laughs) That just sounds so sweet. That's such a great gift that he gave you. Yeah, Yeah, my dad was much more of a like positive influence on me than my mother. We would have brunch every Saturday. He would take me out of the house and we'd go to a little diner and we'd talk. And he was definitely encouraging and, you know, treated me like an intelligent, able human being. And then we'd go next door and I could pick out a book or two. And he said to me, He was very careful. He didn't spoil me. He wanted me to have good values. But he did say, I will always buy you a book. Like, that's one thing you never have to worry about or feel weird asking for, Um, which was an incredible statement of value to me. Like, oh, that, you know, it's so meaningful and important. You know, books are always worth spending money on. Yeah, that was where I started reading Beverly Cleary and Norma Klein and Judy Bloom and Paula Danziger. I just would pick them up once a week, finish them, and then be ready for a new book the following Saturday. I love that. So you fell in love with Judy Bloom. Oh, yeah. And then you went to her birthday party, which I want to discuss later on. But okay. I, just, I just love that. I love her. So you always knew you wanted to be a writer. And I'm just wondering, what was it that drew you to that? Was it about telling stories? Did you have stories in your head? Was it about having a voice? Was it about transporting people? Was it just being able to continue kind of living in this world that books brought you to? What was the appeal for you? And how did you know that you're a writer? I knew I was a writer because I would just do that in my free time. I would sit in my room writing stories. I asked for a typewriter and I taught myself to type. And I think it was my way of processing the world and emotions. If something happened, like, for example, if I saw a movie and I loved it, At the time, one of them was The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. I saw the movie before I read the book. And I was just so blown away by that story. And it haunted me. And I thought about it. And so I wanted to process it. And I wrote my own version of that story, but with girls instead of boys. Or if something difficult happened to me, I would get it down on paper and fictionalize it. So it was very much my way of processing life and the idea of becoming a real writer, you know, publishing was very, very abstract and not something I really took literally, but it was like this guiding aspiration that just never went away. And writers were always the people I admired the most. 
I love that. Then you went to Northwestern and then you went to New York City and you were a literary agent. And I'm just wondering, how did you get the job as a literary agent? Well, actually, I went to GW, George Washington. Oh, I'm sorry. In DC. And then, yeah, I went to New York, worked in publishing and working as a literary agent. This was like later in my career. I'd already had children and I had been working for a film company as a scout, like going around to literary agencies and trying to find manuscripts that might make good films. And one of the literary agents that I met in that capacity ended up asking me if I wanted to work as an agent instead. And I was like, you know what, I, I, I would because you know, working in film, there was really no, I had no real ability or power to influence a project. I just made suggestions and either people took them or they didn't. But as an agent, if you find a wonderful manuscript, you know, you can really see it through to publication. So I said, yeah, that sounds really good. And I started working as an agent. And that's when I started thinking, you know, why am I dancing around becoming a writer myself? Like, why do I keep taking jobs in this universe, but not really doing the thing I truly want to do. And the more I worked as an agent and I saw how much, you know, I just was like giving notes and talking to publishers. And I just saw, I saw that it was just a lot of hard work and perseverance and that the people who were getting published weren't necessarily special. They just put it out there. So I realized I had to do the same thing. And this was the beginning of a theme I explore in a lot of my books, which is don't wait for permission in life to do what you really want to do because no one is going to hand you that permission. And the one example of taking that advice myself was when I started writing instead of just working with writers. That was a transition of great importance for me. Can you describe a little bit about the being a literary agent in terms of was there a specific project that you really enjoyed where you realized I kind of see the nuts and bolts of what being a writer is and now I want to do that was it a specific project or was it really just in general kind of every day coming home I don't know on the subway and thinking why am I not doing this yeah it was more that I didn't like being a literary agent okay. or rather <laughs> what I liked about it would have been better served as a writer like part of As a literary agent, you find talent, you edit manuscripts, and then most importantly, you sell the manuscript to a publisher. And I hated the selling part. Like, I didn't like haggling over money. I didn't like dealing with contracts. I liked the work. So it's like, okay, what's the way to deal with the work without all that other business part? Well, write the work yourself. So it was, you know, just really coming to terms with what do you want to do? And I was like in my 30s at this point. I had two kids. You know, the whole notion of like figuring things out later was becoming more and more ridiculous that, you know, like the proverbial the time is now was upon me. And so I, I made the, the switch. So where do you write? Describe your writing space. Where I write has changed. In the city, <laughs> when I was in the city, and I, I don't live in the city right now, you know, I could write anywhere in the library or a cafe or, um, you know, a workspace, you know, like a co-working space. But right now I work in my apartment at a window overlooking trees and gardens and it's quiet. I need quiet to write. Like I don't like clamor and... um any quiet space. So for now it's home and someday maybe I'll get back to public space where other people are working because I did like feeding off the energy of other people. Do you write every day? 
It depends what cycle of work I'm in. So I publish a book a year and my time is like very much in this cycle of writing a book, then a book comes out and I'm promoting the book and then I'm researching a book, then I'm writing a book. So in my writing phase, which is usually September through March, I do write every day as much as it's possible to sustain that. In the summer, when I've just had a book come out and I'm traveling all around, I'm not writing at all. So um, for me, it's sustainable to write every day because that's only about seven or eight months out of the year. Why is setting so important for you? It's such a big part of the book. It's another character. You always have emotional realism in these gorgeous spaces and these gorgeous places like vineyards and Provincetown and it's always at the beach. And I'm just wondering why for you that's so important. Was that just something that you've always loved in other books that you read? Or do you just love kind of reliving those moments that you've had maybe on vacation or in your life? It's so funny you say that because I was just realizing that the books that I wrote set in these bucolic towns, the beach by the water, are all books that I wrote while I was living in New York. And living in the city is very intense and we all need some measure of escape. And my escape was writing about places that I like to visit. And now that I'm not living in New York, I find myself writing about New York. So it's like (laughs) the grass is always greener. But yeah, growing up, I had these great memories of being at the beach with my family in the summertime. And beach, ocean, salt air to me was always synonymous with happiness and this sort of unfettered, innocent time. So I like to take an intense family drama or you know, a moment of real um, intensity or struggle for characters and then set it against this beautiful place because the contrast you know, gives you a lot mm. to work with. And it also gives me sort of a break mentally. If I'm writing about something intense, I can switch to talking about the water and vice versa. So it's just worked for me in so many ways. Why is family drama your favorite area to dive into in terms of people kind of straying from their family, refinding each other, creating their own families? I mean, it's one of my favorite topics. (laughs) It's one of my favorite things to read about. Why is it one of your favorite things to write about? I think because it's been, you know, a real struggle in my own life. You know, I've had some really ridiculous family drama and a lot of the women the matriarchs that I write in my books are women that I wish I had in my real life. So it's a little bit of fantasy for me. And you're right about the families we create, because when I was in my 20s and I moved to New York, my friends and coworkers and my bosses really did become like a family to me. And in many ways, just as important as the family of my origin. So I think my yearning to have an absolute black and white, this is my family, which it's always been precarious, has has led me to write about people on a similar journey. And the only difference is that in fiction, you know, we can give a neat and happy, satisfying ending. And in life, it's much more complicated. It really is. You've evolved so much as a writer. Wedding Sisters was this fun book. It made me fall in love with your books. And then you did 
a series of books that had as a cover kind of this woman in a bathing suit wearing a sun hat. It's become synonymous with your books for me. And then Blush came out and it was this emotional cover. It was a little bit more, it was just, it seemed like potentially a different kind of book. And I'm just wondering how your covers reflect how you've evolved as a writer and where you're going as a writer. Well, one of my struggles with writing the books that were set at the beach is that sometimes I wanted to delve into things that were like a little, I don't know, like not heavy, but in some ways serious. And then I felt like maybe the story isn't really matching the cover. Even though it's set at the beach, the person might be grappling with cancer cancer or being widowed or you know losing something important and not and I, not that they're depressing books but that there is something the person is grappling with in a big way for some reason i always felt like maybe there was a bit of a disconnect and blush i think is probably one of the books that i feel like unifies the tone of the book what i'm trying to say in the book and the art like it just to me is the most complete package of what I'm trying to do with a novel. So it's a process writing a story and then and selling a story and developing not just as an author, but almost like as a brand. It's just something that it keeps evolving. And, and that's, that's what I was yeah. wondering, because I, you know, I have a background in marketing. And so I always have and you were a literary agent. So of course, you don't only see things as an author, but also in terms of marketing your book. So I was just wondering if it was a marketing decision? Was it a personal decision? And how much say you have in terms of what your cover looks like? Well, I changed publishers between my okay. last speech book, Summer Longing, and blush and my new publisher definitely the sensibility was even though your books are summer books and they're set in beautiful locations and there's all of that escapism um, we don't necessarily need to put that on the cover we can say a little less and let the reader find the story themselves and oh I love that and blush the cover is, is also like a bit of homage to the novels of the 80s that I I referenced in the book and that inspired me so much where you would have just the script like the cursive title splashed across the cover and that's it like if you look at the mass market paperback of scruples by Judith Kranz or chances by Jackie Collins it's like a similar style so so all of that went into it. And now I have a new book and I found that the style really translated just as well to another story. So I feel very much like this is a good path that I can keep I love that. consistent with. I love how you fell in love or at least shared your affection for these powerhouse 80s female, you know, the central characters, but also the writers themselves. It was such a great escape for me. And and you realize too how they're so strong and so inspirational. It was really nice to escape into that and, you know, see pictures of Jackie Collins and all these people on your Instagram. I really had fun with it. I went there with you. I'm and so glad. Ellen Hildebrand calls you the queen of escapism. <laughs> I've also read all of her books. Yeah. I can't imagine what it feels like to have her support. Can you describe your relationship, what it's like meeting her, and then what it's like to be able to put a quote by her on the inside cover of one of your books? Yeah. I mean, you've honed in on something really important in my whole path. Ellen, I read all of her books. I love her books. I love her writing. 
And early on, I think it was with the Wedding Sisters, I reached out to her for my first blurb. And for anyone who doesn't know what a blurb is, it's like those little comments on the top of a book or on the back with where other authors are like, I love the story. You know, I couldn't stop turning the pages. And it's, it's an awkward thing to reach out to people asking them to read your book and to blurb it. And certainly one of my least favorite parts of the publishing process, but necessary. So I reached out to her, I sent her the Wedding Sisters, and she gave me a blurb for that book. And it was literally the first moment where I felt like a real writer. And it might sound terrible to say that it was like that specific outside validation that made me feel that way. But somehow connecting the dots from reading books by this person and loving them, reaching out to that person, and then having that person offer something of support for you know, my book was incredible full circle experience. And she has been a huge, I don't know how, I don't want to say role model, but she's, I really look to her for how to conduct myself in the business. There's a lot of successful people in publishing, but not a lot of really generous people. And Ellen is someone who always would, you know, read something for a blurb. She invited me to do events with her in person, even when some personal stuff had gone on in my life that I knew she had gone through some similar things. I could reach out to her and say, what do you think? What should I do? And she would respond. You know, there's no one like her. Her output is unbelievable. Legendary. Legendary. Two books a year. It's insane. I don't know how she does it. She's so high energy. And she she hand writes. writes. She She hand hand writes her books. Yeah. And feel really lucky. You know, you read in the media about like, oh, women have to lift up other women. And I think she's such a prime example of someone doing that. One of her quotes is that you're one of the writers that gets better with every book. What else well, do you need to hear? I mean, seriously, speak from someone who what? from someone Stop who's it. been getting better for 20 years. You know, it's like unbelievable when you read Golden Girl and you just wonder how does she keep coming up with this stuff. So yeah, I mean, it it means the world to me, and I'm really grateful that our paths were able to cross in that way. And I think that's our job as writers. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of reading a book and really loving it and you can't find anything else from that author that hits you in the same way. And it's like super frustrating. So when you find someone that you know, like, look, not not every book is a gem. Like people, you know, they've got the better books and whatever. But in general, if you can offer consistent output and you give your readers what they want and what they expect, you know, I feel like that's absolutely the job is meeting those expectations or exceeding mm-hmm. the expectations. I agree. So I want to go back to your life in New York. And so as we said in the beginning, Judy Bloom, one of our favorite writers in the world, you were at her 80th birthday party with Barbara Walters, and it was at Le Cirque from what I read. I'm wondering if you could describe this fabulous evening and what, did you get to meet Judy Bloom and what that was like? Okay, well, you're combining two events. I could be. Okay, I really could be. (laughs) The Le Cirque thing was actually in the late 90s when I went to Sydney Sheldon's book party. Oh, which was that's insane. Insane. Okay, because you know, obviously, like I used to stay up late. Her books. Yeah, I mean, I read The Other Side of Midnight and all that stuff. I read those as a teenager. Went to Le Cirque, and that was a very early New York quintessential 90s experience. The Judy Bloom event, my friend Amy Popel, the novelist Amy Popel of Small Admissions and Limelight, she called me one night 
it was a Super Bowl Sunday and my hometown football team, the Eagles, were in the Super Bowl and I was going to watch it. And she said, Jamie, I have two tickets to Judy Bloom's 80th birthday party. It was on this, this place called Symphony Space on the Upper West Side. She's like, do you want to go? And I'm like, okay, that is my Super Bowl. I'm going. Forget <laughs> the Eagles. So we went and it was this huge auditorium filled and Judy was sitting right there across the aisle and oh all God. these entertainers and actors and writers got up on stage and did dramatic readings from her books. And it was absolutely magical and an unbelievable night. I wish I'd known, you know, I wish my nine-year-old self could have known that was ahead for me. And I have, I think I write about that on my website because it's like just such a perfect example of, you know, how books keep us connected and it's always there for us in these surprising and amazing ways. How is publishing different now versus in the 90s? You say that it was really a heyday. Oh, I... Yes. And I hate to be one of those people who's like, oh, it was so great back then. But when I first came to New York in the mid 90s, it was the publishing of your like it was martini lunches and book parties and Harper Collins, where I worked was in Midtown, you know, a lot of all publishing has kind of migrated, it's decentralized now. And there were these legendary editors still at the helm, like Larry Ashmead, who published Anne Rivers Siddons and Michael Corda, who published Susan Howitch and Jackie Collins and felt like I was walking in hallowed halls. And pre-social media, it was very much a relationship business, you know, sending books out to all the newspapers and magazines and the tastemakers who you, you know, crossed your fingers would read the books you wanted them to read. And now, you know, I don't even know what publications still really cover books aside from the New York Times. When I was growing up, Vogue magazine had a book column and I miss books being integrated into pop culture at large. Now it's almost like this niche thing. If you love books, you know, seeking out the information and it's like in silos on Instagram or Facebook, but it was in the fabric of culture back then in a way that I think we've lost and I miss it. What was your best day in New York and what did you do? Wow. That is a really interesting question. It's hard for me to say that because New York is where I've had two children and been married and New York. I guess <laughs> I, I I can't pick one. It's not one moment. It's the moments you can have in New York, which mm -hmm. never goes away, which is you're walking along and there's a certain energy on the street late in the day or at night and you feel like anything is possible. And it is there. I mean, I even remember a year ago, there was this woman I admire on Instagram, like super stylish, amazing woman named Linda Roden. And I was just walking around the Union Square Farmer's Market and she was there. And I was like, oh my God, it's Linda Roden. And I went up and talked to her and we talked for like 20 minutes. And when you get older, it's harder and harder to have the sense of wonder that you had mm. as a child. But New York can still give you those moments, you know, if you're if your eyes are open and, and you're available to it. So I think that's like why I love New York. I went to a play with Sarah Jessica Parker in it, directed by Amanda Peet, that also starred Blythe Danner. And Ooh. I got to meet both of them afterwards. Well, what was the meeting? play? I can't remember what it was called. Um, it was it was about kind of a Bernie Madoff story where the wife and the daughter are left picking up the pieces in hiding. 
written by the actress Amanda Peet. And Sarah Jessica Parker came out after. And I'm a huge fan of Sex in the City. And I met her. And that's my, that and walking in Central Park at midnight with a light snow falling as you walk over those beautiful bridges. Yes. I just love New York. So did you watch the new Sex and the City show? Yeah, it's in my questions for you. We're going to circle back. (laughs) Okay. I heard you on a podcast and yeah, I wanted to bring it up. So I really want to ask you two particular questions from your books. Okay. You have an artist in the book that is Forever Summer who does glass mosaics and Mm -hmm. her mosaics stuck in my mind. And I'm wondering if that was inspired by a particular artist. So, yeah, that's in the book, The Forever Summer. And it was inspired by the town of Provincetown, which has so much mosaic art built into the fabric of the architecture and is very much a product of Portuguese culture. And there's a huge Portuguese population there. So when I went to Provincetown to research it for the book, It was just something I stumbled upon and ended up becoming like a big part of the novel, which that's like the beauty of doing research. You never know what's going Mm. to like change the whole direction of a character or someone's vocation. So that was just something I stumbled upon and it's not based on any particular artist. And then I believe it's drawing home. You have a little girl who makes friends with an older gentleman. And I'm wondering how you came up with that friendship and then how that led into a treasure hunt. How did you put that whole story together? Oh, my goodness. I love it so much. Thank you. I love that book, too. And the girl... See, Okay, I don't remember, honestly, how the whole thing came together, except the girl was very much based on my daughter at the time and sort of her struggles. I think, again, it was an example of wish fulfillment. Like, I wish there was this person who (laughs) could kind of just be an influence on her and lift her out of the cycle she's in and give her something that's inspiring. And because a parent can't always be that for your own kid, you know, you're just mom, they don't always listen or take what you say seriously. So Henry, who's this famous artist who comes into this little girl's life and changes it. I wish I had a Henry for my for my daughter. And you know, I believe so much in the power of art, whether it's writing or painting or sculpture. I think if you fall in love with an art form, it can really, really be your compass. So that was just it was a world I wish existed. I love that. And then how did it get into a treasure hunt? It's so fun. Oh, because, you know, I really like plot and it's really important to me to keep stories moving. And it was a situation where I had these characters and I had a setting and I had to figure out what are they going to do? You know, they just can't sit around talking. And so I put them on a quest. A quest is always a good story. And it gave me something to do with these characters that I fell in love with before I had a story for them to, to act out. I love that. How do you define magic? What is it for you? Why is it important? And how do you evoke it in your own life? There's a song that I've been listening to nonstop by this artist named Agnes, and it's called Magic Still Exists. To me, you know, magic is hope. It's really important to keep that going, you know, in your life. Hope is believing something can be better, even when there's no evidence that it can be. And that is magic. And some people say magical thinking in this pejorative way. But I think magical thinking is like what keeps us going when things are bad. And if you lose 
hope, you know, then your life is devoid of magic because when you stop hoping and believing in things, it's very likely that's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So magic to me is our ability to keep wanting things and to recover from disappointment. And how do you keep that going in your life? Or what do you do if you have a few days where you've lost it? How do you get it back? Well, I think that's where art really comes in. I think, you know, I turn to books or movies or, you know, usually books or movies, and then you escape and you can get a little bit of a reset. There's a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she talks, I do morning yeah. pages every day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. And she, right. And that's a form of staying connected to magic. And she talks about refilling the well and like whatever your well is, if it runs dry and you just don't have anything left to give or you're not able to like feel what you want to feel you have to do something to refill that to reset and books for, I think for anyone who's a reader books are often a go-to for that so you know it's that's and I like to reread and rewatch things so if there's a book I love and I'm feeling in a rut I'll reread it do you have any advice for anyone feeling lost or hopeless right now during the pandemic oh my goodness or just in life in general well one of the hardest things to remember is that everything will pass. Like mm. the only guarantee in life is change. And when you're younger, especially, it just seems like whatever is, is always going to be that way. And it just isn't. What's happening today is the weather. It's not the climate. And, you know, it took me a long time to learn that and I still struggle to remember it. But whatever is bothering you or holding you back today is not always going to be there. And you just have to kind of keep it together for when the storm passes. Mm. Let's talk about your new book. And then we'll talk about and just like that just for fun. Okay. <laughs> so tell us about your new book. What's it called? And can you read an excerpt? Sure. So my new book is called Guilt, but it's spelled G-I-L-T. It's a homonym. So guilt, G-I-L-T, is something that's covered in like a superficial layer of gold. So what's on top looks different than what's actually underneath. And then of course, the homonym guilt, G-U-I-L-T, is dominant negative emotion. And that's a big part of this book. So guilt is set in a jewelry dynasty. Think of like Tiffany and co. And the third or fourth generation of this family is a young woman who's been cast out. And when the book begins, she's returning to the fold to reclaim what should have been hers. She's searching for this extraordinary pink diamond and she finds something very different instead. And it's set in New York and in Provincetown, where a lot of my books are set. So that's coming out June 21st. And I can read you a little bit from the beginning. Okay. So this is from the prologue, New York City, 2004. It seemed to take forever to reach the jewelry store on the corner of 53rd Street, a seven-story limestone and granite building her grandfather called a monument to love. The entranceway was engraved with her family name. Tonight, display windows were filled with black and white photographs of legendary couples, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio, Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier, and in front of each photo, a Pavlin & Co. diamond engagement ring just waiting to be bought by a customer with a love story of their own. It was the 10th anniversary of Pavlin & Co.'s most famous diamond of all, a 30-carat pink stone called the Electric Rose. Her grandfather, Alan, gifted the treasure to the first of his three daughters to get engaged, her mother. 
That afternoon, her mother had let her try it on. It was so beautiful, she couldn't take her eyes off of it. The color of a pale rose petal, but also clear, like a drop of water. Gemma had to clamp her small fingers tightly together to keep the ring from tilting over. One day, it will be yours, her mother said. The thing was, while everyone in the family loved talking about diamonds, particularly this diamond, no one seemed to ever want to talk about her parents' actual engagement, or wedding, or anything about her parents at all. Gemma was too afraid to press with questions. Sometimes she worried things were too perfect, that it could somehow all disappear. Gemma and her mother spent all day getting ready for the party. A stylist visited their apartment, piling her mother's blonde hair into an updo and blow-drying Gemma's until it hung down her back like a golden sheet. Both of their gowns were white and embroidered with butterflies, each delicate wing hand-sewn by another visitor to the apartment, a man with a white ponytail and dark glasses, and an accent who her mother called Mr. Lagerfeld. We're twins tonight, her mother said with a wink. No one will be able to tell us apart. When the car arrived to whisk them down Fifth Avenue, her father looked at them both and said, you two are more beautiful than any diamond in the world. Gemma's parents guided her inside Pavlin Co. The vast sales floor transformed into a wonderland of sparkling diamonds everywhere you looked, in glass display cases, on the hands of the glamorous guests, and in the framed photos on the walls. The photos were advertisements from the long history of Pavlin Co., starting back in 1947, with a black-and-white picture, now recognized all over the world, of a man on one knee in the snow, slipping a diamond solitaire ring on the finger of a willowy brunette in a ball gown. Above them, an elegant script, the sentence, A diamond says love. With those four simple words, her great-grandfather invented the idea of the diamond engagement ring. Her mother told her the story over and over again, the way other little girls were told fairy tales. So that's from the beginning. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I had full body shivers and wanting to cry at the same time. (laughs) Surreal moment in my life. Thank you so much. I cannot (laughs) wait to read this book. Wow. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. It's so true. I just, my mom will love this. She's a big lover of books and got me into reading. So amazing. That's for you, mom. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. And just like that, love Carrie so much. She was such a, that character is such a huge inspiration to me. And I'm wondering as a writer, what you might've done differently with the series. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, I have not watched past the first episode. Like I really, I don't like a lot of things, a lot of choices, creative choices that were made with this show. One of them is, I don't think just because you're in your fifties, you're completely clueless and need like the way the world is explained to you. I think people in their 50s actually have wisdom. Like, they're not these bumbling, politically incorrect idiots, which Mm -hmm. is, I feel, the way sort of these women are cast, that they don't have any sensibility. I also don't think being in your 50s means you're going to, like, drop dead or lose your hearing or all these... Like, it's just so not... It's invalidating, you know, to use a technical term. Like, I feel like the show is invalidating, which is ironic because the original show was so validating about what it meant to be a woman in your 20s and 30s and about being empowered. Like, even though there are all these, like, heartache breaks with men, you know, that they always had this core friendship. And now it's like, oh, the friendship's in disarray and the this and that. I just, it's not 
a message of strength. And to me, that's a huge disappointment. So how do you see going from 40 to 50 and 50 to 60? Because it seems like in our society, women just fall off the map. And I'm just wondering, how do you write that story in your head? So I'm turning 51. And I don't at all feel like I'm falling off the map. If anything, I feel really liberated. Like once I was interviewing the author Francine Prose, I was in my 20s. And she said to me, the great thing about being in your 50s is you walk into a room and you realize like the whole world isn't looking at you. Like it's very freeing. And I feel like if, as a woman in your 50s, you can stand on your accomplishments and you've been through things and you have confidence, you've earned it. You don't need a man to validate you. But if you have a man or a woman in your life, that's great. Like it's just the best time. And I feel like for some reason in pop culture, it's depicted as this time of loss. I mean, I've had weird things happen, but overall, you know, you come out of everything a little bit stronger. So by definition, I'm stronger now than I was in my 20s because I've been through stuff. I feel like the women in Nancy Myers movies are more like the way I'd like to see women depicted in their 50s and 60s. Like, Diane Keaton in Something's Gotta Give or Meryl Streep in It's Complicated. Like they look like normal women. They have past, they have careers, they have children, they have messy love affairs. You know, it's life. Like they're still engaged in life. I agree. And I wish she would make more movies. <laughs> oh my gosh, me too. I really feel she has so much to bring to an audience and it doesn't seem like she's doing anything anymore. Well, I feel... Yeah. Sad about it. Well, I mean, the whole movie industry right now, I feel like is kind of a mess and not giving us very good content. You know, like, I feel like this is like really a desert of material. And there was an article in the New York Times this weekend, can Jennifer Lopez save the rom-com? And I think the problem is much bigger than any one actor being able to revive it. I think the whole industry is in crisis. Well, thank goodness we have your books. Books. So. That's the thing. Books. You never <laughs> see books. Never, never let go of that. You can, like there's no we don't have to revive rom-coms and books because they never went away. <laughs> so what are you working on and why did you choose the world of perfume? So let me think. OK, I am writing a book about a perfumer, a woman who is one of the very few people in the world who are called noses because they have an extraordinary gift of scent. And her whole identity is built around this gift. And it's what happens when she loses it. I partly came up with the idea because there were all these articles about people losing their sense of smell because of COVID and what an impact that has on people's experience of the world and how we don't really think about what an important sense sense of smell is. You know, like it's sort of we take it for granted, but it's actually the biggest trigger of memory. It's like the most connected sense to our past, more so than like a song or any or anything visual. So I was like, that's a really interesting thing. And at the same time, I really fell in love with this perfume brand called Bond New York. And each perfume is named after a different neighborhood in New York City. I just love the fragrances. It's one of the few fragrance brands owned by a woman. And so the combination of these things just sparked a story in my head. And that's the next book I'm working on. Wow. Do you have any other dreams that maybe you haven't found the bravery for yet that you have up your sleeve? The only thing I would want to have done aside from writing was I used to think, oh, I'd love to be a makeup artist because I love makeup 
and I love the sort of act of transformation. It's and- funny that you say oh. that because I was wondering if you would maybe do another book set in the makeup world because when I hear you talk about lipstick and eyeliner it sounds like you have a real passion for it yeah I am I really am thinking in that direction and I just want to say makeup you know not that it's about fixing something that's wrong for me it's just a form of expression you know like I enjoy playing around with color and things like that and I think women you know should see it as if they enjoy it have fun with it it's not about like fixing your face because your face is fine without makeup but it's just like another form of art so yeah that would have been my path not taken I love it well thank you so much this has been a pinch me moment (laughs) your new book sounds incredible thank you I'm going to save it for when I'm on vacation and I'm just going to sit there with a glass of rosé and love every second of it. I love that you put Carl Lagerfeld in it. That's such a beautiful <laughs> homage. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks so much. Shivered. This is a delight. I love that she uses writing to process her life. I think that's why her books are so interesting. It's that combination of her brain working something out and using writing as an escape. It's a magical combination. Jamie's confidence, her appreciation of art, and her generosity combined with that amazing life experience has made her such a savvy, charismatic person that I could talk to all day. I had to edit out a lot of gushing. She had quite an effect on me. I wish I had more time to hear about those fabulous nights in New York, but it sounds like that's the stuff of her new book, Guilt, and I cannot wait to get my hands on it. You can find Jamie on Instagram at Jamie Brenner Writes, and her website is jamiebrenner.com. Be sure to check out her throwback book club and pre-order Guilt. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit follow and you can find me on Instagram at Flip Flops Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and talk soon.